What's up, everyone? Happy Tuesday. Welcome back to Demand Gen Live. This is your host, Chris Walker. Really excited to be back. We had last week off, which is a very rare thing for the DGL team, but we were in San Diego as a team. We had the Refine Labs team offsite. And the first day that we got in there, there was a scavenger hunt. And so everyone was together. And it was the first time for me to see all of the people together. And I was just like, whoa, we've been virtual the whole time. So it's like seeing everybody in person was like a shock to see how many amazing people work here. So that was a, that was a cool moment. We also had an awesome offset. I'm going to share a couple of, uh, a couple of cool things we announced last Thursday that we'll be, um, making a minimum livable wage for all employees at refine labs. So the minimum is $75,000 per year for all employees, which is that there's been research done that shows that that is the sweet spot so that somebody can live a comfortable life while also being able to have some fun. So there's a there was a, a good study done by Princeton out there that, that did that. The second piece is that it's going to help continue to bolster our DE&I efforts as most entry level roles are filled by women or professionals of color. And so we're very excited about making that move and hope that other organizations consider doing the same. Last announcement, we continue to always be hiring here at Refine Labs. So if people are interested, check out the roles on LinkedIn. I think there's also some several roles that are not uh, not published on the website, but are active. And so if there's something just where you're interested in working here, but don't see a role that is exactly a fit for you, I'd encourage you to reach out to me on LinkedIn DM. Sometimes there's been a three or four people that have been hired that way just because they have the right skills and they reached out at the right time. So cool we don't have much of an agenda today as we're going to get mainly into ama and and help people but i do want to talk through one topic that uh came up today on a podcast specific to the world of ops and revenue ops and marketing ops that i thought was an interesting light switch went off to me where uh, sarah mcnamara had mentioned that she splits marketing ops between whether you're trying to run the business or change the business and i think it's a really interesting distinction basically tactical, run the business, strategic, change the business. And if you look at what most ops functions do today, it's mostly over there running the business. Look at sales ops. I went through, I was like, what do sales ops people do? Comp calculations and comp planning, CPQ, ad hoc reporting, triggering for outbound, a bunch of like tactical level stuff. What does marketing ops do? tag campaigns, send emails, like when is the ops function going to elevate to changing the business, bringing the data and insights back to the business to say, we need to think about attribution differently. We need to think about how we're advertising differently. We need to think about how we measure our overall go-to-market strategy differently. We need to, th I'm really interested to see when is this function? Cause that's, that's really what it's, what it's meant to do in my view. And I think that when is this function going to step up from running the business to changing the business? I'm really excited to, uh, to see that. With that as a little intro, I say we just go full AMA and see where we end up. Maybe we go on a couple of tangents and I do some chatting, but let's just get into it. That sounds awesome. Let's go. And one of my favorite DGL community members, Pablo, is going to kick off the AMA. Welcome, Pablo, to Demand Gen Live. Thanks, Megan. Hi, Pablo, Chris. you back. Hey, man. Good, Good to, to see you. Good to be back, man. Good to be back. I've literally been trying to come back for like four. I was ready to come back last week. 
happy you guys got to take a week off, right? First of all, definitely got to start off with this idea that you're able to have a minimum wage of 75 grand a year is so impressive, dude. Like it really should be the North Star of every entrepreneur. And like the ultimate KPI is, you know, like how many weeks you run profitable with a minimum of 75 grand a year of, of your salary. Like it's making such a huge difference and it's such a huge North Star, man. And I'm just really, really think that you guys deserve some major, major kudos for that. It's just, you know, I feel like I got to start off with that. I really appreciate that. Yeah. I'm excited to, uh, to pave the way here. Incredible, man. Incredible. So I got a couple of questions, if that's okay, since it's AMA. I don't know. If, yeah, all right, cool. cool. You, you know it. that I, <laughs> I, w- I watch your content, I feel like slightly different than, than maybe the majority, I don't know, of most or, or, or whatever percentage, right? Because I am, as an entrepreneur, I'm, I'm not just studying what you do as a marketer, I'm studying what you do as a strategist and as a leader and, and the way that you're growing a company. And I've observed kind of this evolution of, of your messaging, right? And, it, and I see you on, I don't know how popular this sounds, but like, Early on for me, it was like looking at Gary Vee and trying to reverse engineer. And I see you on a very similar trajectory of going from like operator to leader to now you're talking about bigger things. Again, really, really cool. But within that, what I started seeing probably like a like a month and a half, two months ago, maybe three months ago, is you've started talking much more about business culture. And you know, since you're, since I don't pigeonhole you as a, as a marketer, I like, I, th- I see you as a business strategist. I wonder where you put strong business culture in the ranking of, of strategies for business growth and business success and fast, rapidly growing businesses seems to be moving up in your ranking of like priorities of things to talk about in a spouse. And I just would love to hear a little bit about that. Thank you for all the kind words. When I think about this as a business leader, I have three equal things that are high priorities for me, and then they flex depending on where we are. Those things are talent and culture. Do we have the right people on the team and do we create the conditions for them to do amazing work? Number one. A second one is product and customer outcomes. I consider that the same thing. I consider customer outcomes part of the product. So what is the product that we're selling? How is it differentiated? How are we segmenting? Who are we targeting? How is it delivered? What are we measuring? What business KPIs are we moving? That's the second piece. And then the third piece is building a effective communication customer acquisition engine, leveraging marketing, not sales. So those are the three things that I think are really important. And then when you put all those things together, they work together. The fact that we have a strong marketing engine and acquire a lot of customers means that we don't have to take on the wrong customers to hit a revenue target. And when we don't take on the wrong customers to hit a revenue target, then our employees have a better experience, which then increases the part of culture. Because of the way that our product is structured and the way that we think about the world and how we segment our customers, we attract a very specific type of person which then impacts culture. So you can see as these are not independent variables, it's almost like you need all of these different ingredients. I mentioned three, but there's probably actually more than that, right? If you zoom out even further, let's just do it. Setting the right goals, the right goals and the right metrics are some of the things that ruin venture funded companies because they have the wrong goals and it kills culture. I've been a part of several of them already in my career because they raise money, sign up for the wrong targets and they value financial outcomes more than culture. So when it's Q4 
and the company's 30% of their, to their revenue plan, nobody gives a fuck about the values. People are, they're not following the values. They're not thinking about what's best for the customer, what's best for the team. They're doing whatever they can to hit the revenue targets because they think that they're going to lose your, their jobs if you don't. That's how you ruin culture. So setting the right goals and having the right financial operating system as a business, I also think is critically important. Yeah, those are some of my thoughts there. But as I, I believe that I have a lot, a lot more to offer and it's not just me, right? There's a ton of smart people that work here that are contributing to where we're going now. I get to speak about it and communicate it. And I have, I think I have a lot more to offer than just like, how do you run Facebook ads at this point? And so as we continue to learn new things, how we structure our sales commission plans, how we build our sales team, how we made the livable wage, how um, these offsites and what we're going to continue to do if you're in a distributed environment, how do you bring people together at what frequency? How does that feel? What happens? Those are all things that we're exploring as business leaders that I think a lot of people would get value from too. It's awesome, man. It's awesome. And it's like, it's so apparent that you gain so much leverage and scale by the ability that everybody on your team is so impressive and everybody has such a great experience anytime they interact with anyone from your team that then allows you to continue that, you know, that momentum flywheel. It's really, really cool. The other thing that I, that I've noticed you starting to talk about much more now is this community led content creation model. You know, to me that that's what attracted me to what you were doing, right? Like that motion was the first thing that really popped for me of just like, oh, okay, this dude is doing this. This is what I believe in as well. I guess my first question about that is when did it become apparent for you to start really highlighting this, right? Like what, what was it that I feel like it's been like about a month, month and a half that you started talking about this stuff. Mm, I've kind of been talking about it for a while, but I think that I've added that terminology to it to try and make it clear. So to clarify for people content-led community, maybe we'll think of a more creative or buzzy sounding word in the future. But the, the, the fact of the matter is very clear. The people that are here are here because of the type of information that's communicated in the content, the narrative around it, where marketing's going, those things. It's content first, which then creates a community of like-minded people. A lot of other communities out there are just trying to get as many marketers as possible into a Slack group or as many marketers as possible into a Facebook group because they charge 20 bucks a month, right? And they, and over time, as you get more and more people, what happens? The community degrades and people like it less. It gets really noisy. It's a, any community that scales in a seat or a headcount model will eventually break because as you, through scale, you ruin the community. So that's, I've been talking about this a lot. And then there's just basically like understanding a little bit more about the flow. We have a live event, which is a pillar in the ground to create content. We get the recording. The recording then goes to podcasts and YouTube in a long form. And the recording then goes into LinkedIn and TikTok and potentially Instagram Reels in short form. And you get all of that through one event where you're focused on producing the content and helping people, not trying to convince the people that are at the event why they should buy your product. It's just a completely different way to think about events. I got, I was speaking at a live event in Boston last week. I got the question about like, oh, like people are fatigued by webinars, right? Like nobody's showing up to our webinars. And it's like, people aren't showing up to non-valuable webinars. People aren't listening to non-valuable one hour or two hour long podcasts. People aren't listening, stopping and watching a non-valuable six second TikTok video. It's not about the medium or the length. It's about... Do they perceive it to be valuable and worth their time to consume or attend? So those are a couple thoughts on that. And as I mentioned, I'm trying to 
create more frameworks around this stuff so that people ha- can make it more actionable. So that's where we're at right now. If you don't mind, Pablo, because I, I loved your question and I yeah. wanted to just share my perspective in working with Please. Chris over time to just provide a different perspective on this evolution that you kind of observed, right? In like the, the content evolution. So the reason I originally you know, decided to team up with Chris and do this was we had a very long-term view of we want to show the world that there is a better way to build companies and there is a better way to go to market, right? And so that's a huge, big, lofty goal. Chris had a compelling perspective and service and offering very specific to B2B demand gen, right? which was the first entry point to make progress towards that longer term vision of wanting to really change the game, not only in B2B, but how business owners and entrepreneurs think about building companies, right? And so that was the initial focus. And it still is a huge focus. That's the core of the business, right? That's the core of what Refine Labs offers. But when you know all of us are in our careers, like I think it's important to call out like, It's so powerful to have that huge aspirational long-term vision. That's how you play the infinite game, right? And today, these are the key activities that we're doing to begin to have the influence in the B2B ecosystem focused on the demand gen component of the go-to-market strategy. And as the company continues to gain traction and success and um, we continue to grow, we're going to be able to leverage that influence and that impact in a way that goes beyond just B2B demand gen, right? And it's not meant to minimize that because that's super important. It's a key pillar for any business and company strategy. But I just highlight that because I think for all of us, it's like, what are we really doing? What is the real long-term goal that we're working towards? And understanding that what you're doing today is making huge progress towards that, but that there is a natural evolution for every business and their offering, their customer, et cetera. So just to just to offer that perspective, because I felt like that's where you were kind of going with your question a little bit. I could have read it wrong, but curious to get yeah, your reaction. For sure. I was going there a little bit, right? Like infinite game is one of our core values. And, and I'm super pumped that you jumped in because I recognize the value of the moderator in this play and the and the wing person in this play, right? Like adds a lot of texture to it. So I think it's amazing that this is the first time that you actually I get to have a three-way conversation with the with the two of you. And I think it's really cool. I guess my question is if you're seeing this as a as a motion, right? I to me, this succeeds really, really well when you are a mission-driven core values-led company and the people around your company, right? Like shining a spotlight on everything that you're doing when you're so integrated makes a lot of sense. And it really accelerates this motion because you're because you're true to the purpose. I guess my question is, are you all ever going to roll this out as a motion to your clientele? And if you are or not, any kind of who can't do this or who should do this kind of advice of doing the... Because you're right. You have been talking about the live event recorded. You're just now starting to really put some great languaging around it, which I think lands a lot better for people and you're leading with it. And I think it's awesome. So same question I was saying, right? Like, are you guys going to start recommending companies that you work with doing this? And um, have you thought through like who should and who shouldn't kind of thing? We've been recommending that our customers do this since the company started. 
It's just whether or not we're over there helping them do the Zoom, you know what I mean? And so the reason that companies don't do this event is not because of the lack of information how to. It's very easy to set up a Zoom, book a calendar, invite people, show up every week, talk about things, make it into a podcast, make it into a YouTube video, find a freelancer to chop it up for LinkedIn. Anyone can do that. It's not because they don't know how, it's because the way that they measure marketing, the way that they think about going to market, and the way that they think about attribution prevent them from doing it because they would rather call and try and sell to people than trying to help people. So we are working on a, like documenting exactly what we do so that people have a more refined, straight to the point type of playbook to do it. But to have a service built around helping people run a Zoom meeting, I think it, um, not, not the business that we're gonna be in, but helping people try and figure out how to get that information that then they then record, that they understand their customer, that's helpful, get that information to their buyers and that we're definitely interested in helping in. So the, the post-production of the assets and the content to create the video assets like we do for LinkedIn and TikTok and things like that, I think actually is a really core skill. And as you get better and better at it, it's I think that it's difficult to actually outsource and get a good product because you need to understand the subject matter more. So I think that we'll end up helping companies in a part of it that we're calling dark social content, which involves a lot of different types of content that get put in dark social. Like I've talked about the difference between website content, blogs, landing pages, white papers, shit like that versus dark social content, micro videos, a podcast, you know, a tweet, text post, images for Instagram, like all of that dark social content, which is the information in the two could be almost exactly the same. It's how it's distributed that I think the companies really need help with because everyone just leans toward how, how do we build a blog like it's 2014 still. And there's not a lot of companies offering, how do you take your blog and your landing pages and your eBooks and, and your videos and your podcasts and get that to places where people actually pay attention and consume content now? That's a place where we're, a space where we'll probably play in the future. Very cool, man. As someone that that does do it, right? Like for people, like I'm glad that I'm not in the B2B SaaS space and I'm not going to have to compete with you guys, but happy to share frameworks of how we've organized it with you guys whenever you want, man. So very cool, man. Awesome. Love it. Congrats, congrats on the 75K thing, right? Really impressive yeah, and absolutely my role models. Thank you. Love, uh, love having you here, Pablo. Thanks for the dialogue. All right. Elizabeth is coming on next and then David Kay. But we have a question from someone watching the live stream on YouTube that I have to interject. So you were mentioning the offsite. So this is Dan from YouTube says, what's the most impactful thing you learn from having the team all in one place? It's a good one. What's up, Dan from YouTube? Good to have you here. Good to interject with this question. What was the question? What's the most impactful thing that I learned? Yeah, went by having all the team together in one place. Tough one. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, there's a lot of things that are important, but I think that the if you bring it up to the high level of like, there is a tremendous value about getting people together in person. I think that like, it's very simple, but I think that really is the, the value here. We're a distributed company. I don't, I can't say never, but very unlikely we're going to have a bunch of different offices around the world where people need to show up to. But in the new world of how companies work, which is primarily distributed, 
how do you think about bringing people together? And then what conditions do you create when they're together, right? So we weren't sitting in classrooms doing training on how to run ads or build Salesforce dashboards. We were much more strategic about the programming to focus on things that really harness the power of the group, get people feeling creative, make people get people in positions where they feel comfortable being vulnerable and learning other things about people. Um, we had an external DE&I keynote speaker uh, named Akila Kaday, which I was uh, pumped to have her there. And people really appreciated that two hour session that we had uh, titled Power and Privilege. So Megan, I'd be interested to hear what you think on this one. But I think that there's just, a, I think the bringing people together is important and then creating the right conditions while they're together were my two takeaways. Yeah, absolutely. I think that the biggest thing for me, and I think you people know this, but when you experience it, it takes that knowledge to a whole new level. And it's, you have the ability to really create an experience where people feel a really powerful emotion. And it's just really hard to do that on Zoom. When you're in person and, and you're thoughtful about energy management and programming and what you're communicating and how you're communicating, it creates a feeling. Like, I think I said this to you, Chris, like the team will kind of be riding this high for a month or two after this one event that we did, because we were able to create all of these emotional connections at every level, right? With individuals, with groups, with leadership, beyond. And I haven't figured out a way to replicate that on Zoom yet, although I'll keep trying. But I think that that's a big one. And I also think for offsites, something that is one of our planning strategies is really thinking about energy management. Like we build in breaks. I never have more than six hours of programming. Like Chris said, we focus less on information delivery and more around collaboration opportunities and fun and things that are less serious, right? Because that's when you're going to see people let their guard down. Those connections will be made. And I don't know, it just creates a feeling that is really hard to replicate in any other way. Thanks for the question, Dan. Keep those uh, brain busters coming. That was a good one. <laughs> All right, Elizabeth, thank you for your patience. I'm excited to bring you on. Welcome to Demand Gen Live. Hello, everyone. I'm driving and I just pulled over on the side. So I don't know if he's on tonight, but I just wanted to give a shout out to Daniel Pinkston. I had my first like Zoom call with him today and I got to meet him for the first time. And it was a really awesome discussion. So. First, I wanted to share my recent win and then second, ask Chris about the Daniel Pinkston. Yes, <laughs> about his thoughts. So I recently, well, recently being as of yesterday, pitched an idea to my chief sales officer who just did about a month and a half ago. I proposed with the blessing of my CMO, who I'm currently mentoring under, that I would take the initiative to work with some of our field marketers had a series of very small, intimate networking events across a few select different cities across Canada, the US. And I've gotten approval and I've got the budget. Now I'm just working through logistics. And the format that I'm putting together is literally like, we're going to have a room full of marketing leaders across demand generation, uh, digital uh, revenue and growth, analytics people, and also some folks from finance, FP&A that work closely when we talk about different, you know, plans, budgets and all. Uh-oh. 
Oh, Liz, you were just getting to the question. Looks like she uh, uh, she stopped over in the car, but lost cell phone connection. I got most of that, so I think that I just I'll run with this one. That's why we do this stuff live. You can't make it up. Liz was talking with her CMO and then uh, got approval to do field marketing events, and then they're going to do events in different spaces with marketing leaders. That's as far as we got. And I was assuming that, or I'll kind of inferred that the question was going towards like, what are some of the things that I should think about with the event or what are some advice you have? And we've done these a lot. I believe that this is a one of the best alternatives to building $200,000 trade show booths like 10 times a year, which is a complete waste of fucking money at this point. And so we've done, I did many of these when our company was four people before the pandemic happened. And it was a major driver to the growth of the company Refine Labs. So what I'll say, I would try and not call them networking events because I think it brings a certain connotation to it. Like, so that's one thing that I would say. And I would try and get people to come because of the, either the people that are speaking or because of the title and the types of programming that are there interest them. And when you do that, you bring a group of like-minded people together and the networking will happen naturally. So typically I find networking is sort of like forced and things like that. And hopefully there's a way that you can make that happen. A couple other things. When you're doing this in a bunch of different cities, try and produce different programming with different guest speakers in every city. And the reason for doing that is that you then have exponentially more podcasts and content than if you were to repeat the same programming over and over in every city. So doing the road show is cool and it makes it easy and you can go to 16 cities and present the same deck, but then you don't have any of the content to use except for the video in the tour bus. So by breaking it, having separate programming in each individual city, you get way more content out of it. And when you distribute this digitally is where you get almost all of the value. There's value provided inside of the event, but the thing that you're you, trying to have the attendees do is participate in the content creation by bringing interest, a strong attitude, questions and engagement, those things that then give you the questions and things that other people in the audience want that then you can produce and, and let go digitally. That's this like field micro event strategy. We're gonna get back to it soon at Refine Labs, I think over the summer maybe. And so that's something that you'd be able to, but we have a couple videos, I think on our website or on YouTube that I did with Josh Braun and Justin Welsh in 2019, 2020. If you want to check those out, you can get a sense about the space that we use the, I think the whole long form videos are out there on the internet as well. So uh, feel free to reference those for some inspiration as well. Elizabeth dialed back in. So I just brought her on in case she has Thank a you. <laughs> I just got off mute. I'm so sorry. Thank you, Chris. Like you, you said exactly what I was hoping that you would say, because I'm exactly in each city, it's going to be very different content. And I'm hoping to then take that and then repurpose it and then fuel the marketing content strategy for the rest of the year. So thank you. Totally. Yeah. And then just to help everyone else out when I'm doing this, it's a content creation strategy that just happens to be in a live event, just like we're doing right here, right? We got to Demand Gen Live because we had success with these in-person events and then we couldn't do in-person anymore, so we went to a virtual. And so thinking about the exact same way that I would handle an in-person micro event is how we sort of handle it here, maybe less AMA and more programming, but you get the sense about, about what I'm saying. 
So good luck, Liz. Let us know how it goes. All right. Let's keep it going. Another favorite DGLer, David. Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Can you guys hear me okay? You're in there. Yep. Good to have you here. It's always a pleasure to be here. So, okay, switching gears, because this is AMA, and we go in all sorts of directions. So yes, we do. <laughs> so, exactly. So, okay, here's my question. We've created great content. We're distributing it well. We're getting some traffic to the website. So all the things that perhaps, Chris, you have been sharing with us for the last two-plus years, or whatever it's been at this mm -hmm. point, and we still haven't gone out for a drink. Can I? Can you? Can you believe that? Anyway, <laughs> so they come to the website, and then what happens? They encounter the website. So in your world, you get to choose your clients a little bit, and you probably look at the websites and say, "Hmm, I wonder if this is going to work." <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. So, if you were to suggest a few things that you want to make sure that the website is and/or isn't doing, that will encourage people to say, hmm, interesting, I think I want a demo, or I want to talk to these guys. What, what are you noticing? This is, I don't know if this is something you really yeah. spend so much time with with your clients, but I can imagine creating great content and driving great traffic, and then they hit the website and, they, and, and prospects go, yeah, I don't know, that's maybe not my thing. So what would you want a prospect of yours or a client of yours to have to kind of encourage that. Let's let's ask for a demo now. Mm. So I break this into two categories. There's the messaging and the story, and then there's like the technical component about how do we convert someone. Both are part of a capture demand strategy, right? So they're already on your website. They're already aware. Now they're going through. When we think about the story, and I treat this a lot about buyer enablement, right? You've created interest, they probably understand the problem, but how do you enable them to get from there to where they're trying to go? And so with that, some of the things that I'm trying to have is I want people to know that this is exactly for them. Like who is your target customer and how do you explicitly, so that they resonate and say, that, wow, this is for me straight away. A lot of companies don't make the hard choices in segmentation to get that effect verticalized SaaS products often can do a better job, but I, I still believe they could do further segmentation to make it even more. So this is for me. I think a big one is what business KPI do you move and not like something fluffy, like grow your revenue, like everyone says, like, like what impact are you going to make on the business? I think there's a big element of social proof, like you see companies going into or uh, prospective buyers going into review sites and things like that. How do you bring some of that content onto your website? So I think there's a way to have a social proof element. I'd I think that your buyer definitely wants to know pricing. I'm blown away by how few companies do this still. So I think that pricing, and then if you have other things that are important to that, your you could ask your buyer and they're going to tell you what are the things that they want to accomplish before they talk to your sales team. And I would just try and say, how do you accomplish all these things? Um, but those are a couple of things that that are off the top of my head on the messaging and the story. Um, you could frame that up into if you're a, a category builder or category creator, like most people are being going to be just attracted to the category story. And then from a technical or like conversion based perspective, this is where we focus a lot more with companies. 
which includes like, where is the button located? How many buttons are we going to have? Do we have a get started for free and a get a demo? Why? Why not? What, what page does it bring you to? Does that page include a place where you can click and get technical support or just to convert into a demo? Um, how many fields are there? Do we use enrichment? Why or why not? How do we handle attribution? Do we have the opportunity, does the buyer have the opportunity to book a meeting with your sales rep if they're firmographically qualified when they submit the form, yes or no? These are all decision points that happen based on the data inside of Salesforce that we're seeing, right? There's no sense in putting a calendar link so that buyers can book meetings with your sales team if the people filling out the form right now only convert to an opportunity at 2%. Then all you're doing is putting a bunch of shitty meetings on your sales team's calendar. So it's about getting the quality and the consistency of the quality so that the people filling out that form, there's no trash. The people that fill out that form want to buy, they're highly qualified, they convert to sales qualified opportunities, the sales team has a high probability and a high level of confidence that when I go into that meeting, that's gonna be the best meeting that I'm gonna have today or this week. And then you can think about these other parts of enablement and, and buyer enablement. The thing is that in order to even get there with a lot of the improving the buyer experience and things like that, you have to let go of the MQL model. So most of the things that I talk about here, companies can't implement because they're still stuck on a high volume MQL model. And it, if they put the calendar link there, it would just further exacerbate and further show how poor the alignment between sales and marketing is. So they don't. They just have them go into a black hole where SDRs put them into outreach and email them and they never get responses back. So uh, I'm not sure how I got in that tangent, but those are some areas where I'd focus on the website. <laughs> no, that's really helpful. Thank you. I appreciate it. And, and I think you're you're kind of shining some light on something you haven't spoken so much about, which is, yes, get the automatic kind of calendaring technology so that you don't have to pass emails back and forth. But just getting that isn't the solution. Getting that can actually just highlight a problem, I guess, is what you're sharing. And maybe we'll, you'll talk more about that. But the reason I ask my question is because so much of what you are sharing is, is, is ways to kind of like think about what the buyer wants and to place it into the content streams that they're already engaged in, right? So that's great. But then they hit a website that is somehow sometimes controlled by other people than us in the demand gens space who are creating the content maybe and you know helping distribute the content. And um, I'm trying to kind of expose the fact that if everyone comes to the website and then they don't, they don't see themselves in it, they don't see the metric that you want to move, they don't um, see the, the typical integration challenges expressed and simplified. All their buyer um, questions, if you will, um, you, can, you can use the, the Brent Adamson kind of approach to his four questions, right? And if you're familiar with those, people will just bounce off and you'll say, well, why isn't it working? So, mm -hmm. so I guess that's just more of a comment than an answer. But <laughs> yeah, I want you to spend uh, some time on that side of the equation too, I think, because that's the other 50% of the demand gen problem. Go to market as a team sport. Business is a team sport, right? Demand gen can't do it on their own, although a lot of companies think that they're going to hire us and then four months later, we're going to solve all their business problems. They're going to get tens of millions of dollars of revenue and it doesn't happen, right? Demand gen can't do it all. It involves sales, product marketing, finance, operations, customer success. So, and it requires leadership 
at the functional level and at the company or organizational level that can bring those pieces together in a cohesive way, get stuff done and get the results that, you, that you're looking for. So I think that's really the highlight, right? So feeling like you don't have control over the website is actually probably your boss or your boss's boss's problem. Right. If you're a demand gen person and you can't figure out the website, it's either your VPs or your CMOs issue about why the website isn't connected to the demand gen strategy. Somebody's got to be over there architecting how it actually works. Businesses run into these issues, right? Sales and marketing, but even inside of marketing, right? Between field and product marketing or, or demand gen or however they start to silo them because there needs to be somebody leading the teams that brings it all together. And I find that oftentimes it becomes disjointed for whatever reason, the leader doesn't have a ton of experience in one's functional area. And so they lean toward others and they rely on other people to do them because the leaders are more focused on administrative things, which happens a lot, right? If you're a CMO, like oftentimes you're not doing any marketing, you're you're an administrator. And so they might be busy doing other things. So they're not able to impact uh, those pieces. But when it comes down to it, for me, it's like, if you're not getting something else done, it's just like if you're on a sports team, and one person's not playing the game, or or you got to figure out is it the coach is it because of the coach is it because the offensive coordinator is calling the wrong plays? Is it because this person that's supposed to be playing linebacker sucks? Like, what is the reason that it's not working? And those are all potential failure points. Cool. Well, yeah. thank you. I appreciate it. This is obviously a conversation that can go on a long time because it never gets answered ultimately in the end but uh thank you appreciate it yeah and i want to talk through on the uh just so people really uh understand more about the calendaring link so i'll go a little bit further here like most companies think that what i the way that i put this forward is like totally unrealistic because they just run performance marketing with google ads and they drive trash into their demo form to say that they got more demos when it was actually just spam bots. And when you do that, or anything, unqualified leads, you got your SEO strategy, so you're getting a ton of junk signups that are totally unqualified that your sales team never wants to talk to firmographically. There's all of these different symptoms that are created through volume, where you prioritize volume over quality. And so, and then if you ever went to that, if you had that company that's sending thousands of MQLs to their sales team, and then you go over and you say, hey, sales, guess what? We just got Calendly. And what we're going to do is we're going to install it on our website. So now all these shitty leads that we send you that never become a meeting, now they're going to be able to book time right on your calendar. And what's the sales team going to say? Marketing hasn't sent us a good lead for years. I ne- I don't want this to happen. I'm going to cancel these meetings a- immediately. They need to go to an STR for qualification first because it's not worth my time to follow up. Do great marketing for a little while and prioritize the people that sales actually wants to talk to. And then guess what happens? Your sales team says, don't give that to an SDR. I want to talk to that person on the first touch. And that's when you know your marketing's working. Happy smiling faces. It's always yeah. the same measure. Happy smiling faces. It's, just, it's so simple. Virtual. It's so simple. Like you're the the salespeople that follow up with the marketing leads know everything about the quality. You could just you don't need attribution. You don't need anything. You could just ask the people, and they would they'll tell you whether or not it's working or not. Thanks, David. Great question. Our YouTube stream is on fire tonight. I got two more YouTube questions coming at you. So. 
So this is from a marketer at a very successful enterprise architecture management B2B SaaS company. Whoa. Okay. They have been really successful in the enterprise. So they're able to easily sell, you know, blue chip companies and they've dominated that space. Now they're trying to penetrate the long tail of mid-sized companies. And she's asking what strategies or tactics they should be considering given that. Like, I feel like we usually hear the opposite, right? I want to go up market. I've dominated the enterprise and I want to go down market. How would you think about making that pivot? The thing that most people look at when they do this is they think that it's just a change of how they do marketing or sales. Whether they're going up or down, they're just like, all we'll do is we'll, going up to the enterprise, we'll just adopt ABM and then we'll just call these people. Or on the way down, we'll just change our targeting strategy on LinkedIn ads and we'll target these companies, which sometimes can work, but oftentimes when you change that like customer, you're changing your ideal customer and then the product oftentimes needs to change in order to meet the requirements of that segment. Maybe those companies, because someone's dominating the enterprise, that the companies in the midsize have nine options and there's no real winner and it's way more competitive on price and your product has all these bells and whistles and it's priced super high and it fits in the enterprise because of all these different details. And it really doesn't match the value needed in the midsize. So there's two places where you should focus here is one, do we actually have product market fit in this segment? And that should be the number one look. How many customers do we have here already? Are they successful? Do they, do they use the product? Do they hit certain retention metrics over a certain period of time? Are there people that are evangelizing it? So those are like customers that are evangelizing it. That's what you're looking for down there to have a sense about, does it fit? And if you don't have that, but you have a bunch of enterprise logos, what's the gap? Is it just because your company's only two years old and you've been dominating the enterprise and too busy doing that? If not, then there's probably another reason why you don't have any companies that fit that segment already because they probably know about you, but don't use you. So then if that's the case, then you're, either way, you're going to want to do qualitative customer research to understand why or why not people in that segment use your product and what alternatives do they see as options and which one do they use either another tool that could be quote unquote competitive, the status quo or something else. So you got this whole product market fit angle. If you get over that, so you got like 15 super happy customers in the midsize and they have been staying for a while and they're hitting your best usage metrics and they're recommending people to you and things are really working from the product side, then you move into go-to-market fit. And go-to-market fit, moving down market for an enterprise where companies typically are doing mainly sales, right? Companies that target enterprise don't do a lot of marketing. Just the way that it works. They mainly focus on sales, the TAM smaller, and they just focus on one-to-one -one in B2B. When you start moving down market, typically ACVs are going to get lower and typically like allowable CAC is going to go down a lot. So you got to think differently because it's going to be way too expensive to run that 12 or 15 month enterprise sales process and close those customers at such a low clip. And so when you look at it in that way, you're actually going to want to lean more onto demand gen. Are if you look at the segments of how demand gen brings quote unquote inbound or what we call pipe conversions, high intent qualified opportunities that convert to revenue at a high rate that come through your website, 
when you look at that, you're going to have a big proportion of SMB. For some companies, we drive 100% of SMB revenue. They don't even have an outbound motion around it. You got a, a mid-market type of deal where some it's probably split, maybe 60-40 or somewhere in that direction that marketing, sourcing, and sales is going to go get the rest. And then an enterprise, it might be 20 to 80, mainly because of attribution bias and nothing more than that. So the split of how marketing contributes to revenue versus sales from an attribution standpoint will be weighted differently based on the company segment that you're targeting and the go-to-market motion that you have around them. It depends on your buyer. I, I don't have enough information. Maybe you can drop it in there, but let's just pretend like some type of dark social channel, one organic and probably a paid one as well, dark social channels to get to all of these decision makers inside of mid-sized companies with the value props that you find in the qualitative market research. That's the first step of what I would do. But I try to break it down more holistically, looking at product market fit. And then the second piece is go to market fit. Go to market fit, in my view, is can we repeatably acquire customers at a cost that will scale? The one additional data point I got from this person who wishes to remain anonymous is the issue is that we have SDRs that are less motivated following up on mid-market leads because the commission is lower. And there's more pressure on marketing to make sure that any leads in this new mid-market segment are very high intent and quick to close as a result. So that's like another factor in the mix. I don't know if you have anything to add based on that that additional data point. I just love getting all of these real-world examples of how sales commission plans come at the expense of your customer experience. Can you believe that, that SDRs don't want to follow up with mid-market leads because it doesn't match their commission plans? So I just see over and over these types of things where it it drives specific behaviors that has nothing to do with the best interest of the customer. And that's pretty much all I have to add there. At the beginning, I'll tell you this, in 2017, when for the past couple of years before that, when I was starting to build the marketing motion that we now operate for 55 SaaS companies, when I was starting to build it, none of the sales reps wanted to follow up with anything that I sent them. Because for the two years before that, before I got there, all, all they got was webinar and trade show leads that never became a meeting and never closed. It's all they ever got from marketing. And so to get the first couple where people ended up closing deals in like 14 days instead of 90 day sales cycle type of things, I was the SDR. I called the people. That might be an interesting play if you truly believe in in what you're doing and you believe that the people that you're generating are high quality and are going to convert to meetings at way better rates and you think that you're the sdrs because of comp misalignment aren't going to be able to do that then i would do it yourself either way because you're going to learn so much you might learn like hey it's not actually the commission plans that why the sdrs aren't following up is because these people don't want to buy anything it's not going to help them hit their target if you go through the process on your own i think you'll get more details as to as to why it's happening. And then you'll have some tangible insights to go back to a head of sales or a director of business development, whoever's in charge of the SDR team and say, look, your teams aren't following up with these. I followed up with 12 and out of the 12, we got 10 meetings with your AEs. You wanna help start to follow up with these? So I would, if you can't get there with the SDR team or the sales team because of some historical misalignment or whatever it is, just do it yourself, like calling, Following up with things is a great exercise of, of leads is a great exercise for marketers to go through just to have a better, a more empathy for the sales team. All right. I got a message back over to me that that was super helpful and a huge thank you for that answer. 
I have another person I'm going to bring on live, Aaron Downs. Aaron, everyone's saying you look like you're on an episode of Cash Cab right now. <laughs> of, of Cash Bob? Yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Thank you so much. This is really awesome uh, to be here. And uh, just to follow up on what Chris said uh, the, of the following up with uh, leads, we've been doing some Facebook ads. And um, it really just trying it out, throwing stuff at the wall, really probably uncoordinated and unsophisticated compared to what some of my fellow marketers on here do. But for that very reason, I didn't want to throw any of the leads to the salespeople to waste their time. So I called up every, every single one of them. And yeah, it was a very, very good experience. So yeah, uh, I don't know, Megan, which, which question was the most interesting? do you think to the, to the crowd or should I just go with one? You can ask all three. So start with your first wow. one. Yeah, they're, wow. they're good. They're good ones. And I think everyone will get value and they're all fairly connected. So I think we got this number one, go. Okay, cool. So uh, I am uh, currently searching for, for another job uh, myself and uh, my strategy right now is to like, I've got a, a hit list of like, four to six companies that I'd like really, really like to work for that I think I actually have a shot at uh, working for. And um, my plan has just been like snoop the companies on LinkedIn and um, find everybody that works there that I have at least like a second degree connection with and try to like come in from like different angles and, and uh, you know, get in contact with them, try to use my network to, to like make an introduction if possible. Then A, ask them about their experience at the company and to see if it's really actually a fit for me and B, in a perfect situation to have some, have an ally on the inside that can sort of like get my resume past, uh, you know, the, the ATS and um, the hiring person. So I, I wanted to know, A, Chris, if that's a, if that sounds like a good idea, or if, and if you have any suggestions. I think what you're doing is a fine idea. I'll offer you sort of like how I'm reading the situation is that to try and get a job, you're doing the equivalent of sales, not marketing, right? So you're reaching out to people, you're trying to get introductions, you're trying to do those things. I would, I would challenge you to think about how do I bring marketing into this equation? So how am I connected with these people? Maybe I don't send them a message right away. Maybe I expand that I'm only not looking at four companies, but I'm going to look at 40. And then every day I'm going to talk about how I figured out a new thing or what I learned or what I'm trying right now. And I'm going to teach people things that might be my coworkers in the future. And then those people that saw that I'm connected with them are going to say, hey, have you seen that guy Aaron Downs posted on LinkedIn? He connected with me. That stuff he's been talking about, about how he makes these crazy videos in his car while he's driving around, like so cool or whatever, you know what I mean? I would try and use the uh, the approach of marketing and then the opportunities are gonna come to you. And when they come to you, it's people that already are aligned with you. You know what I mean? So it's not like you going out and trying to be like, hey, I do this and you have to educate everyone one-on-one. -on -one. It's low probability, right? You can hit there, but it's low probability. You're going to have way more control and way more options. It just might, I was going to say it might take a little longer, but that's not true. It might just feel like it takes a little longer because the activity is slower. 
that's what I would do. Like that's in, when I started my company, it's basically what I did on LinkedIn. I was going out and interviewing with companies, pitching them on how to do this strategy. And every single interview, they're like, we want MQLs. Our buyers don't use Facebook. What the hell? What's LinkedIn? Let's build trade show booths, right? And so I didn't get any jobs. And I'm like, I'm not going to go and take this shitty job with people that don't believe in what I, the way that I see the world anymore. I'll just post about what is going on LinkedIn. And before you know it, five companies want to be my customer. So that's what I would recommend. That's really interesting. Yeah. Thank you for putting it that in that context. I never thought about it like that. And, um, you know, that what you described is sort of like this long goal, this long game that I've been thinking about, but it's interesting. It's, uh, yeah, it's, it's really great. Thinking like you're playing the long game will help you win in the short game too. Yeah. Wow. Okay. And Aaron, your second yeah. question was around networking and really trying to figure out how you can provide value and taking the advice that Chris just gave you is how you will answer that question for yourself, right? Really thinking through how do I distill my experience? How do I summarize it? How do I put that content together and distribute it? The people that find your information valuable will flock to you, right? So all of your questions are very interconnected, which is why I said, let's get into it because each of them fuels that, right? And your last one is really around, you, you, if you want to ask it outright, I'll, I'll pass it back to you. But that, that second question is, if you go in this direction, you're going to really crystallize for yourself what your experience has given you and what you have to offer. Yeah, no, I, I didn't think that they were, they were dovetailed, but they kind of are. Yeah, because I read that, that book, um, Never Eat Alone, and you know, it's, in there, Keith Ferrazzi talks a lot about that of, you know, you've got to come to it with like, I'm not trying to take, I'm trying to give. And I guess I was sort of stuck in a mindset of like, well, all I can give is like either time or free copywriting services or something. Like I can't think of much else tangible that I can give to somebody, but. Mm-hmm. Are you a copywriter? Yeah. Here's an idea if you want to combine sort of like the marketing and sales angle. I would identify who the companies are and then I would also look at other ones in the frame. Like you got to get your list bigger than four to six, but like try and figure out how to get the list bigger. And then I would go onto their website and I would rewrite their hero homepage copy and I would put them side by side and I would post about post one every day. Oh, yeah, sure. I, that's a good idea. I've, I've seen another copywriter do that, too, and he's had a lot of fun with that. So that's a good idea. Wow. Yeah, it's a little bit like free work. But the thing is, it's the companies that see that may not even be the company that you took it from, right? It's just it's a it's putting your work out there in front for everyone to see like, oh, copy really matters. Look at how much of a difference that made. It seems really easy, but look at how that happened. I think that getting that, like that's, that could be a really interesting content strategy for you. Maybe you don't need to make videos and host a podcast or write stuff. Maybe like simple visuals of how these like five to seven word lines of text change could be a good route for you. Wow. Yeah. Thank you. And, and now I can't even remember what the third question was. <laughs> <laughs> you could either move on or uh, remind me and I'll... <laughs> I'm a 38-year-old with a two-year-old. Work-life balance is important. Want to be a copywriter yeah. for an ad agency. Is it too late for me? 
question number three. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Megan. <laughs> it's never too late for anything. Like 38. Gosh, you're like not, you're definitely not even halfway done. So like there's a lot of different ways to be a copywriter at uh, for an ad firm, right? Like I think there's a lot of potential like freelance opportunities like maybe you don't want to work at the ad firm you want to work directly in-house um, so i think that there's a lot of different options for you but they're definitely all available it's just like what do you want and then and then how do you find the right company and scenario and leadership that match what you want so yeah that's what i would do yeah I, I'm told it's like they're very fast paced. They're very like uh, a lot of the bad ones. Yeah. Which is why a lot of people that don't apply to refine labs, because we think that they think that we're some like ad agency that charges by the hour and forces you to work 80 hours a week so that we can bill our customers for 80 hours, but only pay you for 40 like ad agencies have done and just burned people out for years and years. And they still do it because it's the only way that they can improve gross margin is by making people work more than what they pay them for. It's just a terrible model. And so you got to figure out how to not work at those companies. If it was between a company like that, I would say go and do a freelance thing. You might make a little less money, you have a little bit less instability, but you have way better work-life balance. And there's a lot of companies that, uh, and a lot of specialized roles like copywriting where you could make as much as a salary at one of those companies by having you know, three to five clients that you do a couple hours of of work per week for right if they perceive you as the expert allowing yourself to do the marketing demonstrate your skills will allow you to get more opportunities potentially command a higher salary command higher pricing in a freelance gig or anything like that but it all starts with do people understand the talent and skills that you have uh, thank you very much, both of you, Chris and Megan, and, and everybody here on the on the call. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. If you do one of the side by side copywriting things, tag me in it. We'd love to see it. I will all do that. <laughs> thank you, Aaron. Good to have you on here. Uh, Flores had a little question here. Would you tag the people of the orgs you're targeting so that the post hits them? I would not. That would be equivalent of in my LinkedIn posts, like tagging 15 people at target companies, I would much rather them that somebody sees the post and then the CMO who's a customer of ours forwards it to them or their marketing director sees the post and is like, this is good and shares it in the Slack channel. And that's how the CMO becomes aware of my content, not me tagging them, which is coming from someone who gets tagged in so much content, it's all trash content and it's usually spam, it's basically spamming. Um, so I take the position of not tagging people in posts unless it's for a very specific purpose. That was awesome. Uh, come back soon, Aaron. It was great to have you and please drive safely. Okay, we have a few questions that came in when we sent out the email today that I wanna get in for some folks. So this is from Erica. I'm moving to a new company to build a demand team from scratch. I was wondering if you could talk on your podcast about the ideal demand gen team structure. Um, I have a view on it, but would love to understand how you go about it. I'll also just throw in Megan addition. You were saying earlier that business is a team sport. And so 
beyond demand gen, if you have any perspectives on sales or success or other teams, throw that in as well. Let's work through it. When you think about marketing, it also depends on the scale and the size of the company. So for now, let's just assume that there's like six to 12 marketers on the team for a sense of scale for people, just to make it more simple. At that size, I think I'm going to basically have two director or VP level people underneath a CMO or a chief growth officer or something like that. You're going to have a product marketing person and you're going to have a demand gen person, which I believe if you distill marketing and you, you're forced to put things into a certain category between those two, you could actually distill marketing into just those two functions. And so like field marketing would go under demand gen, for instance, it wouldn't be its own thing. But anyway, you got these two categories inside of them. Inside of demand gen, I would have a you know director or VP person leading it. And then inside of that, I would have a team that's focused on creating this content-led community. So inside of that team would be a subject matter expert. There would be a creative or content producer, a videographer, video editor, video producer type of person. There might be an architect, so somebody that's actually putting the strategy together, but most likely at this team size, that's gonna be the VP or director of demand gen. So you have these people that are coming together, putting on events that are every week that are fueling podcast, social content, YouTube, your event and virtual event strategy, probably a two to four person team, depending on the scale. And then I'm going to have a another team that sits in demand gen that's focused on how are we producing campaigns, product marketing, category marketing campaigns that go out at a broad one-to-many scale that educate our entire market about specific points because if our entire market knows these specific points, they'll be much more likely to share the content, discuss it internally, put together a business case to use our product, think about switching from our competitor or any other straight insights that we have to take advantage of those insights. That team is probably comprised of some level of a strategist, content strategist, designer and creative, a media person, performance marketer type of person, you got that. And then I would have a an ops function. I actually would call it growth ops, not marketing ops. I think that most marketers should be able to handle the run the business type of tactical stuff. How do I build this report? How do I send this email? How do I do that stuff? Which would then allow your ops function to focus on stuff that actually matters. How are we attributing revenue? How is our attribution model impacting our execution? What if we changed it? How much better could we do? How are we reporting up to the board on marketing performance? How are we gonna go back and think about getting another million dollars of investment to make sure that in Q2, we have the money necessary to drive the pipeline that we need in Q4? These are the discussions that I'd like an ops function to have if they weren't so busy trying to figure out how to send emails and build automation that doesn't matter and implement technology that's not needed. That's. I don't know, six to 10 person demand gen team. You'd also have a product marketing team. So you notice that ops was under demand gen in this function. If you actually just help me have two functional leads, demand gen and product marketing are two functional categories. That's where I would put it. As we continue to go on, you have those two categories. I continuously thinking that there's becoming some interesting merit in this role of a chief growth officer 
the thing that I continue to be very, very cautious of, and I continue to speak my thoughts on it a lot, is that this person should not come as a VP of sales that got promoted to this role and understands nothing about marketing, customer research, product strategy, or things like that. And that's what most most people that get this jobs, chief revenue officer type of job come from that that space, which is why marketing always takes a back seat and the marketing strategy stays stuck and companies need to eventually hire a firm like ours to fix it is because their CRO eventually realizes that they need it to be successful and they don't have the things that they need. And I think it just does a disservice to the organization to put that person that person in the job. And the same thing could happen for marketing, right? So if you put someone that's from marketing that hasn't done sales before, the exact same sort of like issue could happen. So I continue to, well, at our company, we have a chief growth officer that came from marketing, had run sales and now runs sales and marketing here, which I think is a very unique profile, highly effective at the job, especially given that we are a very marketing first company, that I think that there's a real arguments, not the right word, but a real position to be made to, that you have a CMO and a head of sales and they operate separately and they report to a COO or a, or a CEO. I think there's a real, um, a real potential for that. And then when you think about, let's just keep going here. Why not? Um, when you think about the sales side, I like the things that I would change is that companies, whether it falls into sales or marketing is way over invested in BDRs or SDRs to make up for the lack of that they don't create demand through marketing and they don't create demand through marketing so that they have all the SDRs. SDRs need to call people so they keep not doing marketing because they generate MQLs to feed SDRs and the cycle continues forever until you have 50 SDRs and you got to keep running your machine. I would think a lot differently about how are we going to actually execute business development today. I think about where that function sits. So in my, in my future model that the only SDRs that were there would be people that were experts that were focused on strategic personalized outbound to a specific set of high value accounts, otherwise known as right the, at the moment, ABM or what I call enterprise outbound. So the volume of them would be way, way lower. The skill set would be different, but not as different as I talk about originally. And then people that were headcount and money that was spent to have tens of more of SDRs would actually go into what I'm calling like evangelists. So several people that were on the marketing team that produce content that fall into that category. And then on the sales side, I think it's real too dependent on the company and the product that they're selling. But I think the companies uh, we're seeing a lot of success by focusing on bringing in people that have deep functional knowledge of our customer. So, and I've been seeing this pattern happen for so long. In 2017, there was a team sell between our clinic, you know, head of clinical or clinical director and our sales manager. And the clinical person had done the job of our customer before and therefore was very helpful in getting that person to buy into the clinical data, have trust and credibility, move over the line, implement the product. So I think that there's a over time, the value that's provided by those two people is shifting and we're seeing an enormous amount of value provided by what most people would call a solutions consultant right now or a subject matter expert in the sales process. And if you have the right system of generating interest, that a solutions consultant is actually a very appropriate person to do it because they truly are consulting 
and helping a customer figure out if it's going to be a good fit and less selling and convincing. Don't get me wrong, you still have selling, you gotta close the deal, you gotta be able to ask for the close, you gotta be able to guide a process. There are clear sales characteristics and principles that, that are important in doing this. But from the buyer's perspective, I think having someone that can answer questions, can credibly talk through what it was like to implement the product or talk through experience, I think is something that's missing in a lot of uh, SaaS sales processes today. Chris, you're on fire tonight. Pablo just dropped in the chat. This has been my favorite DGL ever. This community rules. <laughs> I have another question. You mentioned subject matter expertise, and there's a really interesting question from Andres that he sent in over email earlier today. So the topic of this question is about the retention of the subject matter expert. Your SME will be the image of the company. You might be using his or her personal LinkedIn account to publish content and engage with customers. What happens if you hire a successful SME, they're doing a good job, but then they decide to leave the company? You're talking about kind of the risk. How do you prevent losing a lot of reach and influence if that individual moves on? Or how should you be thinking about retaining a subject matter expert that, that takes on this role? you need to value their contribution at the rate that the rest of the market does. It's black and white simple. Like Progressive still has Flo doing the commercials for the past 10 years because they understand how valuable she is and they're able to keep her engaged in that work. How do you do that for your company? The easiest way is, is for the subject matter expert to have a significant financial stake in the business. The second, if you're not able to accomplish that, which could be a uh, significant amount of equity or ownership or some type of financial upside that keeps them invested in this long term, there's that. Or you need to be constantly reevaluating what is important to this person and how do I stay ahead of it so that they're never thinking that they're delivering more value than what they're getting in return. Because if this plays out the way that it's supposed to play out and the way that it plays out where it's best for the company, that the person that's doing it has a ton of fucking options. That's the way that it works. And so they're almost competing priorities, right? As they get more successful, so does it work for the business and you just need to be reevaluating. So I believe the easiest short take home is get someone invested in the, in the long-term business in whatever way possible, most likely financially. The second one would be to establish some form of a ladder or trigger so that as they become more successful and you become more successful, they make more money and are more committed. It's a big risk. That person, like I mentioned, if successful, will end up being one of the most valuable assets in your entire business. And what do you do with the rest of your most valuable assets in your entire business? You lock them in with a high proportion of equity and a long-term agreement that gets them invested in the long-term. And so the only gap here is companies don't recognize or don't value that skill set at the same level that they should or the way that the market views it. It's the same thing with quote unquote influencers right now. Companies will spend hundreds of thousands of dollars a year in Gartner, but won't pay someone 50 bucks that talks to all their customers every day just because of the, the mismatch of value. So until companies wake up to the idea that this is driving more impact than our 10-person BDR team, which if done well, it will. It will for sure. 
But do we pay that person just like we would the 10 person BDR team? And that's where the the mismatch is. People, they, they need to start appropriately valuing and paying for the roles that drive a huge amount of impact and companies just don't because of lack of attribution, general outdated mindset. Most companies would never get to the level where the subject matter expert wants to leave or is, or the most companies will never get to the level where it would hurt if the subject matter expert left because they don't give the program enough time to actually work. They don't fund it in the right way. They don't put the right person in place. So you're think, most likely thinking about a scenario that has a very low likelihood of actually occurring because so many things need to go right in order to hit this, to get to this occurrence. That was a cool question. And it basically comes down to the fact that companies don't value the things that work best in marketing today. Yeah, I love it. That question fired you up. He has two more. So let me let me throw in a second one at you from Andres. I understand dark social is untraceable. But when you publish content on platforms, for example, LinkedIn, YouTube, etc., you do have some metrics of views or engagement. Is there a metric out there that you do look at or track weekly that helps you predict the number of SQOs you might have, or are you working on something like that? When you establish a marketing cadence that drives pipeline, then what you need to monitor is the activity. The thing that I monitor is, am I making a LinkedIn post five times a week? Is that LinkedIn post strong and powerful? Do I record three podcasts a week? Do they get scheduled at the right time? Are we continuously getting better? Are we having the right guests on? So the problem with activity metrics that most companies use is the activities are not correlated with results. They're correlated with leading metrics like leads or meetings or things like that. When you correlate activities against revenue and pipeline, then you can truly just operate the activities. I think it's so it's so simple, but that's really the way that I do it. I hold myself accountable to doing the activities that I know will drive the results that I drive. Am I looking at how much engagement certain posts? Like I I see when the video that I posted yesterday that I thought was only gonna get like 400 because it was narrow, got 1,100 engagements and comments and things like that. So I'm seeing that as a data point, but I'm not using it to predict pipeline. I'm using it to make my content strategy better, right? So there's a, the thing that I'm doing to predict pipeline is am I doing the right activities at a consistent time? And as I'm doing the same activities over and over that I know I drive pipeline, what am I doing? I'm experimenting to figure out what are the next couple things going to be, which is TikTok and YouTube and a couple other ones. So you got your machine running that you know works. You're experimenting to figure out how am I going to build and keep adding on to this machine so it's more powerful and drives more results. And that's the way that I think about it. I love that. We've had a few themes tonight, and I feel like one of them has been career advice. You've given some people some great career advice. And so this is another question that was submitted earlier today after we sent out the email. And I think it'd be a nice one to, to close out the session with. So there's a little bit of a buildup. So hear me out. Titles don't matter to me and to some people, but I can't help but wonder how much my current title could be hurting me. At times, I feel like it doesn't get me the respect or the credibility that I deserve, but it might just be me. A senior specialist title doesn't reflect everything that I do. And I'm compensated in between a manager and director level salary band. I'm driving meaningful results, 
I'm appreciated, but for advancing my career, I'm probably going to need to leave the industrial space for a tech company in the next two to three years. So what action would you recommend that I take relative to my job title or other activities to develop my personal brand to set myself up for success in the future? This one rings true to me a lot because in 2017, my job title was a marketing manager. And what was I What was I doing? I was out in the field working with sales, talking to customers. I was driving the messaging strategy. I rebuilt the website. They didn't have any ops functions, so I did all of marketing ops. I drove our podcast strategy, our content strategy. I ran our Facebook and LinkedIn ads. I worked with freelancers to figure out the creative. I was basically a one-person demand gen team that was operating an output of about 10 people. But when people look at my LinkedIn thing, my, my LinkedIn profile or my resume, they're like, oh, this guy's just a marketing manager. We're not even going to give him a chance. So the skills that you have and what you and not to mention that over the last 12 months that I worked at that company, more than a million dollars in net new revenue came through the programs that I was driving with the year before that it was zero, zero revenue through the website. A year later, it was more than a million dollars for a company that's only doing four or five million dollars net new a year. Big differences in a high growth, high growth. So driving significant impact, digital transformation in a 300 person business that eventually IPO'd. Big time work going on here, but someone looks at my my resume, they don't even give me a shot. They don't even look at my experience. What I so this one rings true to me, and it and the way that I changed that is I started to communicate the things that I know. And so, and it doesn't matter at what level you are, you should be speak, trying to build up and be inside of communities. You could think about what questions got asked during this event or what topics were in the chat and you could rewrite, hey, this is my take on this question or this is my take on what people were talking about here. Figuring out a way to start to be more active so that other people know the things that you know is really all it comes down to. And then because not a lot of people are doing it, the opportunities come to you because you're out there and more visible. People see me as a CEO, so I don't get a ton of job offers that often. Occasionally, people will send me a job offer, and I'm like, what are you doing? Like, But there's a bunch of people out there. Like, the, A lot of people that we hire comes from me seeing someone post on LinkedIn, literally clicking right off their thing, sending them a DM right that second and say, hey, can we chat? And so, And those are opportunities that present to you when you're on a platform with a bunch of people that are like-minded that are probably looking for talent. Like, a, There's so many companies right now that are starving to have someone like you in their company because it's so hard to hire people. So I think that there's a, a big opportunity for you to take a couple of steps to start to publish and produce information to start to build that muscle. You'd be amazed how much you learn about marketing when you start doing that. It's basically marketing yourself. But because you're actually doing it, you see the signals of, I just did this for a bunch of time and it didn't work, but then I changed this and it started to work. You start to see the little details that sometimes you don't in B2B when it's actually for yourself and it's at a small scale. In B2B companies, a lot of their marketing is doing absolutely nothing, but they have an established brand and they drive a you know a couple million dollars of revenue no matter what because of dark social and they think it's coming from their SEO and every other strategy, but it's really the marketing is doing absolutely nothing and they have a, a little amount. But when you have zero revenue or you have zero results and you start from zero, the stuff actually needs to work. 
which is why this, the marketing that we do really works because it took you, it took us from nothing to here we are in, in three years. So those are some of the things that I would, um, I would offer to you. I acknowledge that the title that you're in is going to not is it may not be reflective of your experience and definitely not reflective of your worth, but may actually exclude you from certain opportunities that you apply to blind. But there's a ton of people out there that have manager level titles that I would bring in as a director like tomorrow if I could. I know who they are. So because they produce the information. So if you did that as a specialist, you'd be surprised how many people are trying to get you to come there and be a marketing manager or senior manager. And probably not in two to three years, maybe in three to six months. I love it. We're getting so much awesome feedback in the chat today from first time, you know, visitors and people that, that come every week that they love the format today. Obviously, we always do a little AMA, but can we do like a quick poll? Did people love just like full AMA format? Emojis, chat, get a little little feedback. All right. Love, love, love. Maybe we'll do this again, Chris. Love it. That, that was fun. What they want. That was fun. Yeah. <laughs> that last answer was awesome. But any closing thoughts to mm. wrap us up tonight? One of our uh, core values at Refine Labs is play the long game. Pablo mentioned the infinite game. And I talk about it a lot in... And it definitely works in business and it definitely works in, in your personal life. Having the right mindset about where we're, where we're going and how we're thinking about it is absolutely critical. I can't tell you how many companies that I've worked for or I know people that, that work there or I just watch from afar and see it that they think so short term that it's absolutely fucking miserable to work there. And you, you want to be around people that think long-term because it creates a better environment for you. You do better activities. You you learn, and, and they're invested in you for the long-term. The same customer, the same companies that uh, obsess about results next quarter are the same ones that plan on 30% of their sales team getting fired within the first 90 days because they're just burning through people. They're not thinking about your career long-term or things like that. The importance of being in a company that aligns with your long-term career is so much more important now because there's so many that suck and there's so many that are short-term. And so I would, I'm just pushing people to be a lot more. We're in a, in a candidate market through and through right now. And I would just encourage people to be highly selective about the next place that you join because there's a lot of hyped companies that when you get in there are a big fucking mess. So... I don't mean to be so depressing, leaving it down. So everyone's going to go out and do great. But playing long term has been one of the things that changed my life forever. And so would just uh, however, I can encourage people to start to ingrain the mindset of thinking in a where am I going to be in five? Where do I want to be in five years? Think big, right? Not from going from specialist to manager, but from going from specialist to business owner or going from specialist to CMO of a Series B company because you can get so much done in five years. Everything that's happened in my life happens way faster than I expect. And if I put my own timelines on things always, I wouldn't reach my potential because my mind thinks that it's going to take longer and that it's going to be slower than it actually is. So I just push everyone to think big and make it happen. I love it. With that, 
Have a good week, everyone. Yeah. See everyone. Hey, everyone. Really appreciate you tuning into this episode of the State of Demand Gen podcast. And I just wanted to take a second to say to all of the listeners out there, we just crossed over 40,000 listeners across the world to this podcast. And so super grateful and super happy that for all of you, really appreciate you tuning in, attending the live events, engaging on the LinkedIn content, and now watching us get started up and engaging on YouTube and TikTok. And so thank you, thank you, thank you to all of you. And if you haven't already, if you've gotten value from the podcast, I would really appreciate if you could go to Apple Podcasts in the review section of this podcast and leave a quick review or a rating. It would mean a lot to me. Thank you very much. And we'll see you for the next episode.